This is episode number 50 with legendary comedian, Jerry Farber. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. Speaking with people who are older than you is always such a treat because they've experienced so much more than you have. They've seen things you haven't seen. They've done things you haven't done. They've had the successes and failures that you haven't even had yet. That's why today was such a treat for me to speak with the 81-year-old legendary comedian, Jerry Farber. Jerry still today continues his 60-plus year career in comedy and is a never-ending learner who still works on his craft. Jerry is one of America's top legendary comics and entertainers. He was often considered the number one entertainer in Atlanta for over two decades. Jerry had a successful run of owning his own nightclub in Atlanta for over eight years, which was one of the first ever non-smoking nightclubs, and it got national and world recognition. Jerry is a TV and radio personality, and he also spends countless hours doing charity work, which is one of his biggest passions. In this interview, Jerry talks about his biggest screw-up on stage. Guys, you don't want to miss this story. He talks about what the most embarrassing moment of his career did for him and how it changed the landscape of his career moving forward. He talks about authenticity and how that played a huge role in his success as a comedian. He talks about controlling what you can control, treating others with civility, and how he feels about being 81 years old. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend. Share it with someone in your life who loves comedy. Share it with someone who's scared to fail, scared to jump into something new that they've never done before. Maybe send it to someone who just had a screw up in their life to encourage them to rebound from it. The Apple Podcast app and Spotify make it super easy to share it via text message if you'd like to do that. You can also just send the link nickcarrier.com slash podcast to your friend and the latest podcast episode will always pull right up. Feel free to give a quick rating and review at the end of the show if you enjoy it. If you're on the Apple Podcast app, all you've got to do is scroll to the bottom and click write a review. That's going to be one of the best ways that you can help support the show, help it grow, and ensure I can continue to bring some great guests on. It's also a great learning tool for me to see what y'all enjoy and how I might be able to improve moving forward. So any review is much appreciated. Speaking of reviews, for this week's review of the week, I want to thank my guy, Zach Cox. I used to work with Nick in college. When I heard he had a podcast, I knew I had to check it out. The first episode I listened to was Chris McChesney, and I can honestly say it was one of the best podcasts I've ever listened to. Thanks for making such great content, Nick. Thanks, Zach. I really appreciate that. Chris is great, and I'll share this review with him so he gets this positive message as well. But for now, let's get right into the episode because it's that time again. It's time to work on becoming closer to the best version of yourself today with this legendary comedian, Jerry Farber. All right. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. Uh, I'm super fired up for today's interview. I don't think I've ever interviewed a comedian before, and I have the legendary Atlanta-based comedian, Jerry Farber, with me today. So, Jerry, I really appreciate you spending the time with me. Thanks for having me, Nick. I appreciate it a lot. Of course, of course. Well, well, Jerry, we just talked beforehand. You've had about a sixty-year career now um, in comedy, and as a uh, as a pianist as well. I'm so excited to get into a lot of that stuff. Um, but I want to start off really by by praising you for a few things. I started watching a decent amount of your YouTube uh, videos on YouTube, um, and some of your routines are just absolutely hysterical, and I was getting a kick out of them. Um, and then I also want to acknowledge you for being a constant learner. Another thing I've learned about you is how you're studying a lot of the different face and, and you're just continually working on your craft, continually learning. And I think that's super cool. And I think that a lot of people wouldn't necessarily do that 
at, at your age being 81, but I want to make sure I just start off by acknowledging you with that because I think it's very impressive. I appreciate it. You know what? People ask me, most of my friends are retired, but still intellectually, you know, active, good readers, and learning new hobbies. I never did handle, always made a living, but never handled the money well. And, and, but the idea is this. If I were able just to stop, I would miss what I'm doing more than anything. Mm-hmm. The idea is I really believe if more humans had a job that they wanted to wake up earlier to go do, that it would automatically eliminate 80% of the madness of the planet. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I'm, I mean, I meet a lot of people say they hate the job. They can't wait eight more years till they can quit. And it always reverberates, sadly, that we only have a finite time, right? This doesn't sound like your basic comedian, but I'm really aware of the human condition. I was raised in the South, Jewish, which wasn't the easiest thing to do 80 years ago, down South, you know. And there were some moments that uh, I never got beat up, but there were people that wanted to. And there were times that I wanted them to try. You know what I mean? Because we couldn't understand. I grew up in a part of the country, the South, North Carolina. At the time, it was the home of the KKK, was North Carolina. And I grew up around that energy. It got our attention. And now, 80 years later, it seems like there's still a lot of uh, that, just so much negative that as a performer, Sometimes I, I think what we, I'm rambling now, but the idea is this. It's like people love comedy shows. They come and they congratulate you. And then it seems like they get mad the next day. And, and we have all the churches, synagogues, and mosques and all these places. And I'm not sure how much is getting done. Does that make sense? Do you understand what the. Right, right. No, I definitely, I think, I think it's funny because I think I've thought about it in a similar way in the sense that. A lot of people have a practice of faith, but they leave it at their place of practice. At they, they leave it at church, or they leave it at the synagogue, or they leave it at a mosque. Like in a sense, what I'm saying is like they practice the faith there, and they act, and people act like I'm super faithful, I'm a good person, that sort of thing. But then people bring a lot of negative energy outside of it, and kind of forget everything that they learned when they were actually in there. Well, that's exactly, you said it, you said it more succinct than I did. The idea is when people go to a, let's say they go to synagogue and they pray and they look nice and they put their heads down. And, well, it's like, okay, I've written my check emotionally. Right. You know, to the Lord. And then I'm going to get just as aggravated at the Republican or the Democrat tomorrow. Right. In other words, they, they paid their dues that moment. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's how a lot of people look at it. And I'm not, I'm 100%. <laughs> not perfect myself and I'm guilty of what we're talking about, but I do for some reason feel like that is kind of the thought process of it. It's like, I went to church, check that box off. Like I'm, I'm good for the next six days or whatever. And unfortunately that I feel like that's with that, like that for a lot of people, but let's go ahead and get right into the, uh, some of the early career stuff. I'm really interested and excited to do that. Uh, you know, before, before we hopped on the podcast, we talked on the phone about how, your childhood was important to you. Your parents were important to you, and they taught you a lot of great lessons and stuff like that. So I want to kind of start at um, at 13-year-old Jerry Farber. I heard you had a bar mitzvah, and I heard that the comedian you guys hired 
was no good. So they told you to get up there and start speaking. So I want you to tell me a little bit about that and about kind of how you got a little bit into wanting to do comedy. Okay, let me tell you a little bit right before all that. Okay, please well, do. I have an older brother, still alive. He's almost 90. He's a, a Hall of Fame talk show radio host in New York. His name is Barry Barber. Give him a plug. Uh, and he was also an outstanding high school wrestler. Hmm. He also speaks 30 languages. This is when he was a kid learning. Yeah. I would go to the movies. He would pick up a book on Chinese and learn how to speak for real. In the Army, he was an interpreter, I think, in eight languages. But my, the whole point of all that, he was eight years older. So when I was 10, Barry Farber was the, you know, people would come to the house and say, oh, Jerry, oh, look at Jerry, so cute. And Barry, what do you think about the Russian? You know, they, they would ask him questions right. uh, that adults would ask adults. So in many ways, he was an, he was an idol, particularly because he was such a good wrestler. And I love going to see him wrestle, high school and college. But I'm sure, looking back, I was intimidated. So how I became a comedian, you don't just wake up one day. It's your life experiences. It truly is. Uh, and I was skinny. I didn't speak one language good, much less 20 languages or whatever. And nor did I wrestle well. Uh, so my, my point is I was appropriately neurotic and part of comedy is showing off in the early moments. Ultimately, you hope you're saying something worthwhile, but at the beginning, it's got, like, if I will, a Jerry Lewis concept, right? Dancing all over the place, sort of clown, get my attention, like, love me and love me and am I worthy? So at the bar mitzvah, the comedian wasn't any good. They brought him from Baltimore. And my mother said, Jerry, you got to go up and do, if you just do something, you know, Welcome the grandparents and the aunts and uncles. I do that right now, the same, similar. Right. But it was so much fun because it felt natural. I didn't feel like I was, I felt I was in the writer place, even as a kid. And that's the origins and the genesis of how Jerry Farber got comfortable on stage. Yeah, let me digress about if I may. Yeah. Jerry Stenfeld had a, a great line about this. He said, the two biggest fears of people, one is dying, the one is death, and the other is public speaking. So Seinfeld said it means if you're giving a eulogy, you're better off being in the casket than making the eulogy. And many people think they just, God, I can't believe you're getting. I've had football players, Nick, to play for the Falcons in the early days. Some of their big name players that would come to a nightclub and and I say, how do you guys do that? You know, how do you just bang around each other for three hours? And they say, Jerry, I'm 6'6 six, six and way too sick. I've been doing it since I was 12 years old. How do you get up on stage and risk people hating you? I said, well, it's similar. It's what I do since I'm a kid. Right. It's a, my, my source of energy and strength. And, uh, you know, not courage, but, you, you know, the worst that can happen, I've said it many times. To young comics, the worst that can happen is people don't like you, but that's not going to immobilize you. Yeah, right. I mean, if you're only living so people can like you, that's sort of a sort of like a, a vanilla. That's how the bar mitzvah comedy started. 
Yeah, well, so I'm, I'm still a little bit intrigued. You know, you said when you got up on stage when you were 13 years old, it just kind of felt natural and it felt comfortable. Why do you think that was? Like you said, you had, you you know, you were the younger brother to Barry Farber, who was kind of this idol in a sense and like super athletic and just a smart guy. And then you're this kid who's eight years younger, but you still walk up there confident and ready to be in front of people. Why do you think that was? Good question. I, re- I, I left out a big component. The piano. I started playing the piano by ear and got and got fairly decent at it. So the piano was a way for me to integrate and have a cheerleader look at me without laughing. <laughs> and then I would add the joke. So, you know, I guess being somewhat personable helped a lot. My brother, uh, all the accomplishments, it wasn't something he could do comfortably. Because it would have been too frivolous to tell jokes and, you know, play the piano. I mean, uh, it was my thing. It became my thing. Yeah. It's of identity that I could do and do it comfortably without freaking out. And it just kept on growing, even in high school, after 13. Okay. Do you remember, I don't know, in your age, if they have superlatives. I doubt if they do. Anymore. They do, actually. They do. They do the wittiest, the best looking, the best oh, yeah. cheerleader. Well, you win all, you win all of those. I, from the tenth grade on, was the wittiest or the funniest, or which could mean the stupidest also. But <laughs> I always had, I was always a superlative, if you know what I mean. Oh, that's funny. And by the way, just so you know, and people listening, I still have anxiety. I, I'm never, at least the first five minutes, as comfortable as I want people to think I am. Right. Uh, I don't have to be loved anymore. I outgrew that. But you still want people to feel their time is worthwhile. People drive to see a show. They usually pay a ticket price. So there's some genuine responsibility to trying to make it, not just for your sake, for their sake, that it's worth the time. Uh, And that's only gotten more substantial as I've aged and realized how lucky we performers are to have audiences for what we do. So early on in your comedian days, what do you think was maybe your biggest challenge into making you either feel the most comfortable or what was maybe the biggest challenge towards finally getting to the point where you maybe felt like you were being successful in it? Boy, what a, it's a great question, Nick. I, it's important to go back to. So I went to Chapel Hill okay. for two and a half years and did a lot of entertainment in college, you know, fraternity parties and other fraternity parties and so on. And other people were going, getting ready to go to law school or medical school or taking over their father's business. And I was really thinking before college, like, I really want to, I think I want to be an entertainer. I'd read a lot about entertainers. They didn't go to college to be an entertainer. You know, most of the early comedians, the Buddy Hackett and Shecky were guys whose name you may not know who were icon comics, a lot of them didn't finish high school. They just had a knack and a zip and a zest for entertaining people. So uh, all that had to do with uh, that I'm just going to do this. I'll never forget my mother said well, because they loved comedy. They would, they loved, they were from Baltimore. They, they were used to clubs and entertainment. But when I told my mother it's what I wanted to do, she said, well, Jerry, you know, you're 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 fun, but you know you've got to be trained. I said, Mom, that we train on the job doing this, right. which in fact you do. 
you can practice anything, but it's hard to practice what you're doing right now, and it's hard to practice comedy. You can practice piano, singing, football. Why do you think about it? You can practice a lot of things, but you can write the best jokes you think in the world and go out and not have one person laugh. So you're training on the job how to make things work that you're yeah. doing, usually while you're getting paid for it. And then, well, I want to tell you another interesting thing because I think about it a lot. I had seen Mel Brooks live doing comedy. I mean, 60 years ago, Lenny Bruce, even Woody Allen once at a club in New York. And I'm, this is when I'm thinking I want to be a comedian. And I remember thinking anybody in their right mind, I remember as a kid thinking this, like who in the world would follow anybody, even want to be in an industry when you have people like that, right? Because to me, they covered everything that you could possibly cover. And then later saw Richard Pryor, who's still one of my favorite performers. He just owned the stage and his subject matter. And, but it didn't stop me. It made me really think about this. My mother had another saying I love, uh, a girl I liked that hurt my, uh, I thought I was going to, I wanted to die. She wouldn't go out with me in high school. My mom said, Jerry, this is the thing. You're never going to be the best looking guy. You're not going to be the richest. You're not going to be the most entertaining. You're not going to be any of those things. But just become more of who you are. You know, be more of you and don't keep competing against everybody else. Because if you think about it, if every linebacker watched Lawrence Taylor play, then they would just, you know, most of them, if they're truthful, will know they're not going to be Lawrence Taylor. Right. It can still be a good linebacker, even in the NFL. Yeah, I think, I think you I think you talked to me a little bit about this over the phone when we talked beforehand. I really loved the quote that I, I think I remember that you saying that she said when she told you, try not to be boring, but be eventful. No, oh my, yeah, they did. They, oh, that's right. Well, that's when I was really a little bit younger. Hmm. Be doing, you know, boy banging into walls or playing football in the house. And she would say, look, you cannot do that. But what I'm going to tell you, you are going to do it again. And when you start driving, something else will happen. But just be, be, try work and not being boring. And they were great about it. That's why they encouraged reading, you know, so we could develop the mind muscle as much as the uh, all the other things. And I'm grateful to them for having given me the – but they were pretty liberal with how we were raised. There was plenty of good, fresh air to breathe quite often. And it's not like they never got aggravated. They certainly would get aggravated, you know, but that was a big, that was a big deal. Stay eventful as much as possible yeah. without being a jerk about, you know, without being, without sucking up all the air. Right. Like I did with you before we got connected today. <laughs> that, that was really amazing. Yeah, you're good. You're good. So let's get a little bit more into the actual comedy side of things. Um, when you structure a, a piece or um, what, what, is, what does that like look like? Is there a storyline that you usually like craft um, a skit off of? Or how do you kind of go about creating a skit that you go and perform? Well, I would say since I'm maybe in my middle 50s, the shows became, which is not always good, and I'll tell you why is I learned how to just be sociable. A lot of groups that would hire me, even jobs that would come from Sherry, they were called corporate, right? 
I mean, they're worlds apart. A comedy club's different than a holiday church or a synagogue meeting, you know, where they hire you to do to do a speech. Corporate is where most of the guys would make the most income. And then it was just not as creative as you were, but you couldn't, you had to stay in parameters. And I did that well, you know, appropriately behave, not necessarily church social, but leaving out some of the words that give emphasis to a joke or something. Right. So a lot of how I, I got by under the radar was basically being a decent human before, during, and after a show. In terms of the lines, a lot of my material interaction was old-fashioned. When you see a man that looks like that with a woman that looks like that, you know he's made money, pointing to a couple in the audience, right? Right. Well, that's like Don Rickles did all that. And I was I would watch every comedian and then ended up doing more real material about me and my neurosis and anxieties and being a minority in the South in the day. And sometimes it's not what you say, it's mm-hmm. how you say. And of course, I'm a big fan because I never was one. I was never a great writer. I always felt if I had a gift, it was to transmit something funny, not necessarily to be the originator. When you ask me if I know what I'm doing, I guess the answer is I'm not even sure I know what I'm doing. It's, it's sort of just, um, I don't overthink material. Right. Like I don't overthink it like tonight. So I'm you, doing, pardon me, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, so you don't necessarily go in with like a specific, like a specific drawn out plan. It can just kind of, you just kind of pull different things from how you're reading the audience. I have a lot of things in my mind that I can call like ideas. And every crowd, especially given this age, I hardly do any crowds anymore where people are close to my age. Occasionally. Tonight's crowd will be all in their 20s and 30s. Mm. And it's a lot more difficult. But what I find is if I'm an amusement, even, which is okay, just the way I look, they're not used to seeing an old age face. Right? But when I show any energy at all or even do some of the piano things, they lighten up. You can feel it's palpable sometimes. Audiences are they're like weights. Sometimes they just come in and they're incredible to work with. And other times you really got to work. You've got to work. Yeah. And I find the older ones, understandably, allowing they've kept on growing, are going to be a little more sophisticated in that they've heard more. Like some of the young comics who who, who just use use words that uh, that are fine with me, sometimes to offense audiences. And I say, Jerry, are, are you approved because you don't do a lot of uh, X-rated material? I said, no, I'm not approved at all. But I get bored easy. I do get bored easy. Uh, I bored. I have bored others. Good friends tell me when I'm boring, but other ones bore me. So I said, I've heard all that material. And what you're doing, Richard Pryor could do with his little finger better than what you're doing. But until you've got, well, you understand that. I mean, you're probably would think of yourself as more, you're more balanced and more nuanced and more intelligent than you were 10 years ago. Right, Nick? Right. Right. Uh, so I, this is a point that I like to, to to tell, not to impose, but to suggest to young ones that will say, Jerry, do you think you're getting too old to, to do this? I said, I hope not. I may look like it, but I'm still very much into it. But I said, let me ask you, how old are you? And they'll say, I'm 38. 
and I'll say, are you better now than you were when you were 28? And they'll say, sure. Well, I hope so. I think I am. I said, well, then what in your mind is about aging that we all of a sudden start to go backwards? You know what I mean? The point being, right. I, should, I should. If I'm on the ball, I should be better now than I was when I was 60. And truthfully, I think I am. I have more weapons. Yeah. I don't look as good, but I have more weapons to call on. Weapons meaning routines, jokes, ideas that I don't have to really write down. Okay. They're still in my mind. So, so let's stay on the age thing then. If there is a piece of advice or if you could give a piece of advice to 71-year-old Jerry Farber mm-hmm. about, about your career, what would that piece of advice be? If I were giving it to a 71-year-old? Yeah, if you were giving it to your 71-year-old self. Oh, it would be, this is, uh, God, you're asking Nick. These are great questions. <laughs> it, it would certainly be to be true to yourself. You know, is to try to act as little as possible. We all act some, but to act as little as possible, give it your best, and don't belabor being 71 unless you feel it's going to be humorously informational. Mm. In other words, people, uh, one of the compliments I get sometimes is, wow, you're really pretty uh, cool for 80. Look, you're. Th- this is the point. People are living longer. And there are men down here in Columbus, former army guys that walk and jog three, four miles a day. They're in their 90s. In their 90s. Now, their background is military, so they're used to, you know, being in shape and having some regimen and so on. But a lot of 70, uh, a lot of the older crowd I meet somehow are giving up. They're sort of giving into it. Let me digress one more moment. Yeah. There's a, there's a TED talk that you might find interesting. A younger, older than you, but between our ages. And the subject of his talk is getting comfort can kill you. And his point was that a lot of people in their 50s, 60s, 70s either have made enough money or inherit money or whatever. And they think, okay, now I have it made. It's the beginning of not having it made at all. Meaning they quit thinking, quit reading, quit, uh, quit, you know, being on the edge of life. Right. Picasso said, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. Mm. What you always like. So uh, the the advice to seventy one is just you, you can be seventy one years, but you can be anything still. I love that. I mean, I still feel competitive uh, even at this age because I am competing against a lot of attractive, in shape men and women that are doing comedy in their twenties, thirties, and kicking it. Right. So sometimes I get hired. Sometimes they get the jobs. But sometimes we work together, and that is challenging and lovely at the same time. Uh, I like that. I like that piece of advice a lot. So similar, kind of stemming from that a little bit, you know, you said about how you've talked about how just be yourself. And then you mentioned about how one of the things that you did well when going and performing shows is like be who Jerry Farber is, be an authentic person before during and after the show, did you ever, did you feel like you have to, and do you currently feel like you have to like step in to Jerry Farber, like the performer, or do you just feel kind of more just like a natural transition? Now I'm going on stage. If that makes sense. Like, do you feel like you have to step into the personality of Jerry Farber when you perform? I have to step on the gas. Sure. You know, uh, is the expression of you to step on the gas a little bit to go from 55 to 60, sometimes 65, so that 
because audiences do require some energy. For sure. It doesn't have to be jumping around. It doesn't have to be Jerry Lewis energy. It could be Bob Newhart, who was really quiet and a thinker, but could keep an audience in the palm of his hand. Uh, but I like to engage the audience. I mean, those old things like they sound hack. Some great comics think it is hack. Like, where are you from? Oh, really? Oh, I did a show that was the worst. In other words, to bring the audience, because they're people, they have their own stories to tell. So sometimes to integrate an audience, there's some part of a show quite often where they do enjoy that. I remember at my club in Atlanta, I was the, well, part of my history is I was the only white member of the Black Musicians Union in Atlanta. Because when I moved to Atlanta in 1960, there were two unions. Isn't that amazing? 1960. Right. There were white musicians and one for blacks. Well, I was playing more jazz piano, and the musicians that hired me were black musicians. So I joined, and I'll never forget his name was P.J. Cook. He was probably 90 years old then. He ran the black musicians. And he said, Jerry, are you sure you want to join? Because you know the white guys might not want to use you if you're a member of our union. And I said, well, the only work I'm getting right now are from the black musicians. I forget that sometimes, but I was, it all worked out because maybe five or six years later, it became one union. Mm. But uh, that was real history. And I was already, I was already working. Well, I, I don't want to dismiss the piano. That really helped me get a lot of work, still does. Right. Because I don't just play songs. Sometimes that's a gig unto itself, like cocktail music or a wedding or something. But when I'm doing in my show, I do imitate Elton John and I'll do Billy Joe or Ray Charles, some those guys. And it adds a dimension to the just talking for an hour, say. Right, right. Um, Which you're thinking right now, boy, it'd be great if Jerry had a piano there. So you get <laughs> all your life in something. <laughs> no, no. Um, well, uh, throughout your career, was there one particular show that what that just went the worst or that was your most that was the biggest struggle that was the biggest challenge that like stands out to you by any chance yeah can i, can I tell you about it because it stands out yeah please i was in my 40s i guess and there was something called uh, J uh, the jewish federation it's a big deal still is and they paid me five thousand dollars to go to Florida, but I think both, no, Palm Beach to do a show. There were about 400 Jewish people and a fundraiser for Israel. So I went and I walked in. It was a black tie affair. Remember, it was expensive, maybe a thousand dollars a person or something. And that was a, it still is a lot of money, but it was a ton of money then. Bear with me. So next. So, so anyway, this is a big deal. So a, a woman from Birmingham, Alabama, saw me in Atlanta. I had my nightclub in Buckhead then. And she loved the show. Told her sister, who lived in Florida, you've got to have Jerry Farmer. All right, so anyway, the night happens. It was a lot of money. It was one of the biggest fees for me. It was 5000 I'll never forget it. So I show up at this fancy country thing. And my parents had told me, they said, Jerry, you know, uh, they lived in Florida. They said, I don't know if this crowd's going to really get you because there are a lot of people from New York and, <clears throat> pardon me, a lot of uh, wealthy people. And uh, so anyway, I said, Mom, I can do anything. I promise you I'm going to be fine. 
So they came. And before the show started, I was walking around. People were coming up to me and say, so you're Jerry Farber? I'd say, yes. And they said, well, have you ever been on television? And I said, no, not nationally. They said, have you made a movie? You know, we don't know your name. Have you done anything? Like, I mean, really, that kind of a thing. And I remember having a lot of drinks because I was really, they, they, they owned me. You understand? Right. They, they, they got to me. And so I was supposed to do an hour show. And I did about 20 minutes. And the woman who hired me came up and took the microphone. And well, let me ask you this before I go further with the story. So, how what what is your rating on a, on your show? Like what what are the parameters that I would that I would imagine it's all G rated, right? You, you can you can say whatever you want. You can say whatever you want. Well, because I just realized the the, the climax of the story, and it's not really. It's today. It's pretty tame. So the woman took the microphone to me, and she said, "That'll be enough." Now, Nick, mind you, I was at that time in the in the throes of being Jerry Farber, you know, getting work everywhere, and people were enjoying it, and the club was doing well. And she took the mic from me, and I said, "Okay." And I apologize for the show, but I need to ask this audience. Any of you ever had an orgasm in the last 20 years? Those are my my last words. That's the only laugh I got. Oh, my gosh. Of course, it was that sort of very, to me, anal. And by the way, it was all my fault. I let the early moments standing around the bar get to me. Nobody had heard of me. They were all, oh, that's not even the whole, it's not even the best part of the story. They said, Jerry, last year we had Buddy Hackett. We didn't like him. They were mentioning all these big names, and they didn't like them. So I'm thinking, what have I gotten myself into, right? Like, what kind of group is this? It's a really hard-edged crowd. They've seen everything, and they'll let you know it. And it was like that. That's a big part of it. It's the show. They had people, and everyone to me was a star. Right. But well, it was a big, well, let me finish, because it's a big learning lesson for me. Please. So. They paid me half the money. I was totally embarrassed. I figured it would be the end of my connection to the Jewish community, which it wasn't. But what I learned is I, after that show, I didn't just take any more any job that was offered to me. It was, I remember being really a heightened sense of I am not for everybody, if you understand. That's why there's so many different comedians today that can fill all the different niches. And thereafter, I really didn't just take job. People would say, Jerry, we're a little club in some, and it's sort of a roadhouse and they like country and Western music. And for a while, if it was close, I'd go look at the club, not because I was an elitist, but I didn't want to impose what I did on somebody that just, that wasn't going to get it. So how did you determine like who and who was not? Good. What what kind of crowd who was and was not suited for you? Well, there were. This still goes on today. There are still are a lot of clubs that do one night or comedy shows, and the rest of the week they could be. Let's just say on weekends have a country and western bands. This is not 
a knock on them. It's just that their favorite comic wouldn't be Woody Allen. It would be tend to be Larry Cable Guy, or maybe or uh, you know, or 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 Jeff Boxworthy, mm-hmm. deserving, and they certainly can cross a lot of boundaries. But people, certain people, have a certain favorite thing. Most of the crowd that goes, I don't even know how I can describe them, but most of them lean to be a little more liberal politically and don't necessarily want Jewish jokes or redneck jokes or just sort of more observations of day-to-day life of just daily living. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Which I can do a lot of the, a lot of those things too. So, but that was the show that changed the whole direction. It, it was humbling. It gave me a lot more humility, which is, to me really healthy yeah no i mean i absolutely love that story i was i was honestly sitting on the edge of my seat like i can't couldn't wait till it uh till you got to the climax of it but i think that was a cool cool climax so that being said was there another time in your career where you were almost kind of in a similar situation in the sense that you were really nervous going into it because you weren't sure the crowd was going to be suited for you and you were going to have to kind of sway them to to enjoy you and if so, how do you kind of turn a crowd to be in your favor? Well, I started saying a, a line, and a lot of people didn't like it. A lot of people did understand it. I would say at the end of a show, if I didn't think, you know, I don't know if you play tennis, but when you play tennis, there's a certain click when you hit the ball really well, right? right? A golf a golf club also. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you see the New England Patriots, and they're just clicking, and, you, you know, you've already lost your bet if you're on the other side. I mean, they're just clicking. So I've had shows that, that clicked enough that when they don't, I always feel guilty. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll say, I hope that this is the worst moment of your life. And at the, usually towards the end, if not the very end of a show, and I said, I hope I'm the worst moment of your life because if I am, you all will have a charmed life. Yeah. If I'm the worst moment, and sometimes they are looking like I may be, but in fact, a comedian should never be the worst moment of somebody's life. Right. So that you actually say that to the audience? I say those are the words I'll say. Okay. And I have a good friend who, when the budget allows, we work together. He's a great singer. Uh, your, your your cousin loved him, Johnny Parazzo. He's still very active. Singer, songwriter. And he said, Jerry, you know, it sounds like you're apologizing. I said, I almost am, Johnny. But if you listen to it carefully, it's not totally humbling. It's just allowing clean air that I don't want them to think that I'm going to think that I did a masterful job. Mm. Sometimes I'll say something like, well, I, I won the game. I might not have beat the point spread, which, <laughs> which means if you're a 10-point favorite, you only win by six. Right. Some of your people, if they gamble, aren't going to like you. You didn't beat the spread, Yeah. which means the killer show. You ever, you've heard that expression in comics, boy, you killed tonight. You killed. Yeah. You killed uh, one of my lines. I like to use this one. I'll say, well, I got this job because the owner said, Jerry, we like you because you're a warm guy. And when because I look up. Because you're a what guy? Warm. W-A-R-M. Warm. Okay, yeah, yeah. And I'll say, guys, you know what warm means? It means not so hot. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, that's I really believe this. Uh, in my experience, in this long life meeting people, some a few billionaires along the way uh, is that quite often really 
they can still really be humble and it's refreshing because I don't care how much money you make or how many trophies you have until you've cured cancer or homelessness. You're just another blessed fortune American mm-hmm. or human as far as that goes. Right. right. So no matter how famous and I, I see it too much in the comedy world because quite often the young ones will hit and they'll make $50 million in five years. Like Jim Carrey, for instance, who I have met and loved his talent. Sorry, he's going through such a tough time. But, you know, they really get taken like, God, look at me. It would be hard not to when you're young, I think, like an athlete. It would sort of be hard not to think, you know, you got a, some, some baseball player has signed a $263 million contract. Right. I'm not a huge baseball fan. I don't know his name, but, but every, all the young ones do. And, and it's like, that could be enough if you're young to think, oh, I'm really, really, really something. Well, of course they are. They're really talented, but they're big issues. And then that I want to tell you one uh, last—not one last thing, but something I really like about what LeBron did. Uh, You may be familiar. You know, he's from Akron, Ohio. Yep. And about the scholarship money he laid out—that if any kid in Akron, which is a depressed part of the country, any kid that graduates high school can get a free ride to University of Akron. And it's so far, I think he may have put as much as something like $300 million in that project. Mm-hmm. They're guaranteed college if they graduate high school. And so that the story, it's, it's legitimate. I hope you'll look it up. But the athletes don't always get the accolades they deserve because that was a pretty good stroke. And he has made a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Michael Jordan, the same, has given a lot of money back to him. I mean, when they reach that level, because that's not just millions, you know, many hundreds of millions. Yeah. And they they stay well and healthy. They know they got to give a lot of it back because what would make them feel even better is to be able to really help. I've started a, a charity called Coalition to Assist Senior Housing. And if you write a check to it, you make it out to cash. That's a, that's a joke, Nick. Uh-oh. <laughs> anyway, it's uh, not many people. It's hard to really look. You know, the, the thing I have an issue with looking back too far because it seems like it takes my breath away to think that it's almost 60 years right. of not being employed, but mostly being employed. No, we're not having a job where I check in. And I do get assessed. I, we probably get assessments more than people that have a regular job. Yeah, definitely. Because every single job is a career into itself. You know what I mean? It's like, and I've had plenty of times where I'm not invited back. Right. But before that show I told you about in Florida, it was pretty much easy for me. I was really knocking it down. And I remember it. And it was just being sweet and funny and had some minutes in the show that would be topical, you know, taken off the news, whatever. But that show really did wake me up to one. And, and I did that. And I did drink too much that night. I remember. Right. Because I was so unnerved. I want to, I want to ask you about, uh, I just it kind of sparked a thought when you, t- when you talked about how you've had a, a job in this for the last 60 years, but not, and ever everybody else gets like assessed in their job, you know, by a boss or whatever. But you, you in a sense, kind of 
you get assessed by your crowd, yes, but you're in a sense still assessing yourself based on the crowd's response. So I feel like a lot of what you do is you have to kind of define your own success. You have to define like whether or not you were successful at that particular show and why why you were successful or why you were not successful. So I'm trying to figure out what, how I want to formulate this question, but I kind of want you to talk about how you can go about defining what success looks like for yourself, having not be, be given direction by somebody else like a boss. God, when I, Nick, I applaud you. I've been on other shows, but never had questions. This, right, these are missiles of questions. Are, um, you know what? That's such an open-ended, whatever I would say is so open-ended because I, uh, I don't live in a bed of anxiety and neurosis, but the game is still on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we live in a society that it's almost hard not to be infected by what success means to a lot of people. Right. Which is three or five million dollars or more by the time you're 60 or 65. Right. Living in comfort in a place in Florida and golf and country club, and Europe and those things. So I had my opportunities. I used to gamble. I went through a period where I was, I bet on sporting events. And it almost wrecked me. I was having just an absence of, uh, because people who have faith would say it, they lost their faith. And I was, uh, and this was in my late 30s. My career was going well, but I was still had emptiness. And so I was gambling on games. Never thought I was an addict, though I was because I never bet on baseball. I didn't like <laughs> it no, I'm dead serious. I mean, you know, four months a year, I didn't gamble. Yeah. So it would be hard to convince an alcoholic who would stay drunk eight months a year that they wanted out. I mean, it, it could be argued both ways, but I knew in my heart I really was being foolish. Mm-hmm. I didn't bet on baseball, so that was my defense. Right. And, and, but the point of, of, of all that, so, I mean, I have things in my life that are keep me monitored more than, you know, more than my career. Mm-hmm. I accept humbly that I've made a living for a long time in a pretty rugged business, and I attribute it to just showing up early, leaving late, shaking a lot of hands, hugging a lot of people, mm-hmm. and, and learning something about another thing you would do, which is a, a detail. When you do a corporate event, you learn a lot about the company before the show. Right. Because whoever there, they loved that this person in front of them, who's a stranger, did some homework. Right. So you know, okay. So that so that that was just part of a technique of getting jobs, but the assessment would be that I'm still getting work, and if I don't, I'm going to be okay. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to not eat enough meals or I have some nice uh, just uh, movies or vacations or whatever. Right. But the biggest joy in my life, or I don't know, we haven't talked about your life, but I had a. a child when I was 63 with my ex-wife and we're very close and he's almost 20 and he's really helped these later years a lot because what he did and it's a lesson for other younger people in the midst of their careers that it's not everything that what my child did was to get me to be outside of myself a lot more Mm. to not self-obsessed you know, and not think I'm the greatest. 
my kid is the greatest. So I put a lot of energy and still do. And we see each other a lot. We're very close. And he's in college. And uh, I, I want to give him a plug, if I may. Yeah. He's, and he's quiet. But he's he's singing and writing hip-hop. And his stage name is Ray Rockman, R-O-C-K-M-A-N. And he actually makes, he gets checks twice a month from Spotify. There you go. And it's amazing to me because if you met him, he's quiet. You know, he's not what you really think is of a hip hop uh, performer. And, and he's starting to do comedy too. And I'm, you know, even though some of the things I don't like, I don't just, I try to do what my parents did. They let us, our wings flap on our own, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, the, the the most advice, and I tell him the same thing my mom told me. Boredom really kills the soul. Illnesses can hurt us a lot, but boredom is a killer, and there's no reason to be bored. I mean, I remember even in the throes of my gambling, I loved football and basketball games, and uh, uh, but even in the midst of that, I always would read the papers of books. You know, I, um, I think it's important. And I encourage you, if you're not, to read. Uh, I find with a lot of youngsters down here, college age, even though they're in college, they're not really, nothing in the world is of much interest. The Alabama game or Auburn game is more interesting to them. You know, the coming games. Mm -hmm. And I think, and I totally understand it. But for people today, it appears to me, if they're really going to get a jump start, they've got to whether they want to act older earlier than the other ones, it wouldn't hurt. It can always be useful in your weekends, but during the week to good to keep up because I think that the, and I tell my kid that about the competition, you know, we were competing. I was competing with a handful of musicians in Atlanta, but today you're competing with inter, with people all over the world for, for gigs, mm-hmm. uh, entertainment too. I think two of the top comedians in New York now are both young Muslims guys have their own shows and the point of it reason i would mention muslim is some americans be surprised but entertainment does allow for everything you know what i mean if you can get the attention and you're saying something uh relevant it doesn't make any difference what who or what it's a pretty liberal vocation yeah so jerry i'm going to be down to the last few questions here the first one i want to see if uh was there any maybe important decision that you made at some point in your career early on in the middle of the career, or maybe even in the last 10 years or so that you feel like was maybe the most important decision that you ever made, but you didn't really realize the significance of it at the time. I believe there's one detail earlier when I was working, uh, you know, as a youngster mm-hmm. for about three months, my father had a clothing manufacturing company. And I was on the road for him for three months. But he gave me this advice. He said, two things I suggest, Jerry. It won't work if you do. You don't sleep with any of the people working in the department store. There was a women's line. He, he manufactured women's sportswear. Mm-hmm. And he said, don't play around with anybody. And then the other one was, was don't bounce any checks. If you're need to have cash asks one of the customers you know he, he gave me a lot of accounts i had accounts to call him that knew him right 
And of course, I think the first day I broke both the rules. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. But the idea was they were rules because there were a lot of guys that would come in and just, you know, young salesmen that were doing well, but, you know, couldn't, they really were doing it. So they just meet girls on the road and have a bunch of affairs all over the place right. and mishandle the money. And then the reputation was really hard to recoup, if ever. So in terms of what I do for a living, respect for the crowd, even if on occasionally maybe somebody doesn't deserve it, is to go in always respecting the people that are coming out, particularly when you've been booked and the people are aware there's going to be a, quote, professional comic, is to be as professional, which is not the same thing as always being funny. You cannot guarantee being funny. You're, right. You should be able to guarantee you're going to be professional. Uh, that means not getting mad and not, you know, calling them a bunch of idiots and not, not being disrespectful because it really, it feels right just not to do that, even though there are moments you want to land base somebody in the crowd. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, well, I like that. I think that's a good, uh, I think that's a good, um, mindset to have going into it. So we talked about, we talked beforehand before we got onto it, the show and started recording about how you're 81 years old. Um, and you got a, you got a number of emails just today about saying, I'm so happy that you're still, that you're still alive, but you also, glad, you know, they, they say it glibly, but sweetly go, oh, I didn't even know. I've never heard. I haven't heard about you for 20 years. You know, because part of it, Nick, real quickly is because of what we're doing today. You know, the podcast and being interconnected. Right. I haven't been doing that. I mean, I didn't get on Facebook till probably three or four months ago. <laughs> and was amazed at how many people were connecting with me. And then a lot of them, I would answer everybody. I right. mean, at least 42 or 4,300, you know, of course oh, they're not uh, friends, but, but, uh, and I will answer most of them, you know, when you connect to be a friend to say hello and do a greeting. I mean, you know, that's old fashioned. Uh, you know, the, the idea is not just having a friend and then it sits there mindlessly. Mm -hmm. just to make a connection and a lot of people have been responsible to that reconnect again but today they almost uh, there were eight of them and and at least five or six said or oh, really glad to hear you're alive I haven't heard your name for a long time used to enjoy you but everything's okay so I'll respond not as long and dragged out as I'm talking to you <laughs> by the way I appreciate the time I, I really do and I hope when you can You'll give Barry, though we don't talk politics because he's as far to the right as I am to the left, but he, ha he has had an amazing career. And also, he was one of those early radio guys and st still is on the air five nights a week in New York. That is, if he was going to take you down, he would do it intellectually and not calling you names. Mm. You know how today on the radio has become such a, uh, it's, it's really not what it used to be, and I think that's why it's losing a lot of credibility. Right. It's people are calling each other. It's just really, I mean, they they wouldn't say it in person because some of these people would be nuts to say what they say, even online on you know on, on uh, Facebook too. How people feel. I mean, I've done some of my share of that, but the idea is, I think we individually can maintain civility, and it's failing civility, old-fashioned civility. It may seem corny, but it's really not. It starts there. Meaning, uh, if we're going to disagree, let's try to disagree agreeably. Right. The concept of it. Part, well, you know who said that? And he got land based. He really did. It was Obama did say that. Huh. 
let's disagree. Uh, you know, and he said it with a smile on his face, right. and he meant it. And then everybody said, well, he's such a phony. I, no, that's where we've gotten to, that even if you are genuinely sweet in nature, it's almost corny to too many people like it because it, it doesn't seem real. And yet to the same people who go to their places of faith, you know, on Saturday and Sunday and and know that that's the right thing to be doing uh, is to try to reconnect. Because uh, I don't know how you feel, but I would love to have see how you feel in closing what you think is happening to this country about how divisive, because the future is not me. It's going to be young people like yourselves to try to make it all make sense. Mm-hmm. Well, awesome. Well, Jerry, before I ask the last question, I want to make sure um, I acknowledge you basically for a lot of things um, that we that I acknowledge you in the beginning about because it's just become more and more impar- apparent through our conversation about how you've continually preached continual learning, always working on your craft. Um, and I love kind of the, the latest message of disagreeing, but agreeably and just uh, making sure that we're all civil with everybody else and willing to communicate um, openly. Uh, and everything like that. So I just want to make sure I acknowledge you for that and your conti- and your uh, longevity in your career and your su- sustained excellence and everything um, and your ability to learn throughout throughout all of it, I think is, is awesome. Um, but the last question that I want to ask you is similar to uh, kind of what I was talking about. I believe that becoming the best version of yourself is a constant journey. I don't think we're ever at the best version of ourselves. Hopefully on our last day, we can take our last breath, hoping that we got close enough. Um, and I also believe that it's a unique journey. I believe that the way that I'm going to become the best version of myself is going to be different from the way that you become the best version of yourself. So what I want to ask for you uh, and for you personally is if you could currently work on or do three things to get you closer to that best version of yourself, that best Jerry Farber that you can be, what are those three things that you could currently do or currently work on? Well, one is reaching out to others who are in much worse shape than you are. For instance, homelessness is a big part of my extracurriculars. Mm-hmm. I was a I was a board member Nick in Atlanta of a of the task force for the homeless. It was a shelter. We had five or six hundred people stay and sleep and were fed. Uh, and our shelter was downtown, a very unpopular uh, shelter because there were so many people, right? And it was in a part of town, downtown Atlanta, that uh, near the Fox Theater. Point is. We really, I learned a lot about people and myself and never felt as worthwhile as when I was doing something for somebody else. At the beginning, I remember feeling, well, this is nice. I got my name in the paper. They're having a fundraiser, Jerry Farber's name. I remember thinking those things. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden I realized this is really something that if I can encourage others to do it, it's just getting, well, I've heard this a lot, is that, you know, most lives are better led as you age by in the service of others. Because if you think about it, it's all we're doing, even if we're not finished products, because I don't think we ever are. That'll be up to a, a higher make or a higher calling at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can do the best we can do. But, but the homeless shelter, uh, wherever they are, I'm doing it here in Columbus for real, because I'm not disgusted by them. I'm drawn to them. Because in the days I mentioned gambling, I was always on the uh, close to falling apart. But I had many friends that liked me that helped. Right. So, so 
I feel I'm giving back, not to them. They don't need anything back from me, but others do. And I see everywhere. I mean, homelessness is one of the biggest problems in, in America. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of people just fall through the crack. They're not all alcoholics and they're not all drug addicts. A lot of them are former military. So I think that, but the idea is uh, reaching out to help and you go back at night and you just feel better. Not you beat, you don't beat your chest and like, look how nice, but you've done something. Right. That's more worthwhile than just going to another movie or, or watching another game. Uh, the other, I think, I'm struggling for an answer because I know time is really short. It's just uh, being, uh, I like the word being the best you can be. I do continue to walk two or three miles a day. Oh, wow. Just to stay, you know, like we are, our bodies are a temple. Just try to stay um, healthy enough. That's not a lot, but for me, I do it fairly quickly. And then the other is to be as integrated, to be less of a stranger to every audience. Because I read this recently, and it said, be kind to everybody. Because everybody's got battles going on just like you do. Mm. In other words, that if our emotions, if our emotions could be naked, that we'd all be a lot more integrated. Yeah. Because people are battling illness or money problems or, or foreclosure or loneliness. And I, I meet that. And I think that's why so many young people love the, the comedy clubs because laughter, you know, babies laugh. When babies smile, it's amazing. It's a miracle. Right. When they giggle and they, we don't know what they're, you know, I mean, babies, not kids, babies. And it's pretty miraculous. And I love to try to have people know that I'm a compatriot. I'm not a stranger. I'm not just there to take the few dollars for a show, but to be available. Right. To be available to, mm. to be, uh, to be able to be accessed. I like it. Those are some, those are three great things. Uh, Good luck in that show tonight uh, for the uh, the 20 and 30-year-olds. I know you're going to kill it. Well, it's a club I'm doing, by the way, every Wednesday in Columbus. So it's, oh. uh, I've taken over a private room in a restaurant that's very busy called Lemongrass, and it's got a crowd of mostly youngsters, and I bring in other comedians, too. Awesome. Maybe in your travels, maybe you get to Columbus sometime, but I'll call yeah. you when I'm moving in Atlanta, which will be actually soon. Where, what part of the city do you live in, by the way? Well, so I actually, I actually live in Nashville. Oh, for God's sake! Okay, yeah. I, 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 I moved uh, here two years ago, though, from Atlanta. Good for you. I was just there a couple months ago at Zany's. Ah, were you really? Yeah, I hey, was. I will. You have to. You'll have to let me know if you ever get back up here. I will. All right. Listen. Thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Jerry. I appreciate you. Take care. Thanks. Thank you. There you have it. Thanks so much for listening to everything Jerry shared today. I hope you loved his story about his biggest failure, what that taught him and how he applied that lesson moving forward. Because that's really what it's all about when it comes to failures and when it comes to screw ups. It's about having the experience, evaluating what exactly happened, why it happened, and then the biggest part, coming up with a plan to minimize or eradicate the likelihood of it happening again. I think we sometimes miss that last step. We know what happened and what went wrong and often can determine why it happened, but we don't take action on ensuring it doesn't happen again. So make sure that whenever you go through your next failure or your next mess up, that you take time to really evaluate your best plan of action moving forward to make sure it doesn't happen again. If you enjoyed this episode, I hope you take a second to share it with a friend or two that you think might be inspired by it. 
Share it with your friend who loves comedy or who has failed recently or with someone you think could benefit from just hearing some positivity today. If you have some feedback for me in this episode, please let me know by leaving a review on the Apple Podcast app or on iTunes. If you're on the app, all you've got to do is click on the show, scroll to the very bottom and click write a review. Any feedback is beneficial for me to hear so that I know what some of the things that I'm doing well are and maybe what are some of the things are that I can look to improve on. Remember, be authentic in your everyday life. Jerry talks about how his authenticity allowed him to really connect with the audiences before, during, and after the show, and he felt that it was really one of his strong suits and keys to success. Learn from your failures. Control what you can control. I hope this episode inspired you to take action in your life, to get moving, to serve others, to be grateful for this life, and most importantly, to start taking action towards getting closer and closer to your best you. You.